This is Matt Freitas, and you're listening to the Late Night History Podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different than what you normally hear. Since it's almost the 21st anniversary of 9-11, I feel compelled to share my interview with former FBI agent Tim Clemente and his experience responding to the attacks on that fateful day. Tim's SWAT team was training with Red Team at DevGrew, more widely known as SEAL Team 6, running through shooting drills in their kill house. It was a typical Tuesday morning in September, until it wasn't. Tim's team watched the second plane impact the World Trade Center and knew immediately America was under attack. Tim describes how he and his team raced at 100 miles an hour from Virginia Beach to reach the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and he also recounts the small actions of heroism he witnessed. Each time I hear Tim tell the story, I get goosebumps. The audio is a little wonky, but the story is worth listening to. So without further ado, here is episode 20 with Tim Clemente. And um, can you start by uh, giving me like your background before 9/11? Like I've I've listened to your uh, I listened to your brother's podcast called uh, Best Case Worst Case, and I'm I'm a little familiar with you, but uh, just uh, I just want to start with a little uh, brief background before 9/11. Okay, um, I was uh, a police officer in uh, the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, uh, the 43rd District, one of the most violent police precincts in America and in the world, and then uh, joined the FBI in 1995 and started out working international narcotics against the Cali cartel in Colombia and did that for about four and a half years in 1998. Uh, Osama bin Laden issued a fatwa against Americans all over the world, and in response to that, the Attorney General John Ashcroft ordered that the FBI create a new capability to deal with threats like that uh, anytime and anywhere. And so a new squad was formed as part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it was called the National Capital Response Squad. We were responsible for the National Capital Region, as well as uh, parts of the world that the Washington Field Office had jurisdiction over within the FBI. And that was the Africa, the Middle East, um, and most of Europe. Uh, the, the globe is broken up uh, into regions, and uh, like Miami's, Miami handles Central and South America, New York handles like the former Soviet republics, I believe, uh, Los Angeles handles the Asian uh, countries, um, I think Houston uh, or Dallas handles like uh, South Pacific, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, so uh, I did that um, starting in uh, early 1999 uh, for about uh, eight or nine years. And how old were you in um, in September 2001? And what was like your what was like your job title? Um, I was a special agent on the uh, National Capital Response Squad on September 11th, and. Uh, I had was at the time I was uh, forty years old, about to turn forty-one. And can you can you uh, talk about like where you were on nine eleven? 
uh, on the morning of September 11th, uh, I was uh, the number two commander of the FBI's Washington Field Office SWAT team. So we had a 37-man SWAT team, and we trained regularly uh, every couple of months with uh, elite units, uh, SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, uh, FBI House Rescue Team. Uh, we also trained like the State Department's Mobile Security Division, uh, U.S. Park Police, U.S. Capitol Police, uh, Washington Metropolitan Police Department. So we were continuously training with uh, other groups in case there were circumstances where we would have to work together in a mutual aid situation with uh, either domestic entities or with our elite military anywhere in the world. We did a lot of exercises with um, the, the you know premier special operations units, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6. And on the morning of September 11th, uh, I was in uh, the Virginia Beach area at uh, a compound that is... Uh, SEAL Team 6's headquarters, and we were in the shooting house, our SWAT team working with uh, Red Team at uh, at uh, SEAL Team 6, and we were training in the shooting house uh, on the morning uh, when the first tower was hit by the plane. We were walking around the shooting house doing uh, training iterations, uh, hostage rescue training, and uh, one of my guys notified me that there had been an incident in New York with a plane hitting the World Trade Center. That's fascinating. So, and just like walking back, like just a little bit, uh, I'm so I'm like a history writer, and I have a lot of friends who uh, served in those elite units. Particularly, it's interesting that you said it was from Red Team. Like one of my friends, who, uh, he joined that unit when it was uh, so it went from Red Team to Red Squadron. So that's pretty fascinating yeah. that. Um, I was going to ask you what color team it was, but so it was a red team. Yeah. And then, yep. so the, you're in the, are you in the shoot house when you see the, uh, or when you hear about the plane, when you see the plane? Yep. Yeah. One of my guys, Chuck, who, who later, uh, joined the FBI's hostage rescue team came up to me. He had his pager on. Most of us left our uh, pagers in 2001. Not very many of us had cell phones. Some did. Um, but we, we all carried pagers, and that was the primary way the FBI reached you uh, 24 hours a day. You always had to have your pager with you, and you always had to have it on. But since we were in a shooting house wearing ear protection and live firing, you, you're, you're carrying the minimum amount of gear, and uh, a pager wasn't something we were worried about because we were all separated from our jurisdiction. You were hours away from Washington, D.C., which is our primary jurisdiction in the FBI. And... Uh, Chuck had his pager on, and it might have been because of the work he was doing, whatever his current assignment was, that he had to stay in constant contact. Uh, the rest of us, we would notify our squads that, hey, we're going to be in, in uh, Virginia Beach training for the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll be out of, out, of, out of reach most of the time. And so Chuck got a text or a page and immediately came to me and said, hey, I just want to make you aware of this. And he showed me the page that said uh, the World Trade Center, uh, one of the towers has been struck by a plane. It may have been a small plane. It's unknown at this time uh, if it was an accident or intentional. And so I told the, the, the commander of the SEAL team, hey, uh, you guys aware of this? And they said no. And I said, do you have a TV or something so we can just see what's going on? 
and he took us to the command center on the second floor of their shoot house and uh, they had a television there with cnn playing we saw the burning tower and one of my assistant team leaders dan had been an american airlines pilot before he came into the fbi and he was looking at the the cutout in the side of the tower that the smoke was coming out and he was estimating the wingspan and he said that's not a small private plane that's not even a small private jet that's that's a commercial airliner that hit that I, I said really and he said yeah judging by the size of that, that that wingspan you're looking at at least a 737 or something like that and i said wow what does that mean and we were all trying to figure out how could a commercial airliner hit a tower so big in restricted airspace over manhattan on such a clear day we're looking you know in virginia beach it was one of the most beautiful days i can ever remember uh, sunny, clear, not a cloud in the sky, maybe 80 degrees. It was like the ideal morning. And as a matter of fact, as we were going into the shooting house, most of the guys on my team were complaining to me because I was responsible for all the training uh, because we were in the shoot house on such a nice day. And they were all saying, can we go to one of the outdoor ranges? Can, you know, there's a range on the beach. There's another training facility on the beach, which is for uh, – basically sim munitions and, and playing war games that goes from the beach into a swampy area. And they were like, we'd much rather be outside on a day like today than inside training, you know, even though being the shoot house is always fun. So everybody was complaining. It was a perfect day. And I said, Hey, these guys are always set up for us. We're going to go in the shoot house. And this was at like eight o'clock in the morning when we were having this debate. So we're going to go in the shoot house and we'll see, maybe we'll swap out in the afternoon and do one of the outdoor ranges in the afternoon. So we're watching the screen of CNN showing live footage of New York, and it's just as beautiful there as it was in Virginia. And we were all trying to say, how can you have operator error that bad to hit a, basically a block-wide building over a 1,000 feet tall accidentally? And we just couldn't comprehend how that was possible. And while we were talking about that, looking at the live feed on CNN, the second tower was hit. And Dan immediately identified what kind of aircraft that was, just looking at it live and seeing it bank into the tower and hit the South Tower. And we were all blown away. And uh, we, we just couldn't believe it. And I turned to the guys on my team. There was... 30 some odd guys standing behind me plus a couple dozen seals and uh i said to our guys guys get your gear we're going we're going to new york and the seal team commander said to his guys guys get your shit we're going to war and it was just an immediate realization that this was intentional and none of us had any idea it was anything other than al-qaeda it was what immediately came to all our minds, those of us that worked on the terrorism side. Um, you know, I had worked the USS Cole in Yemen and the U.S. Embassy bombings in uh, Tanzania and Kenya. Um, in 1998, the USS Cole was October 2000, less than a year before 9-11. And, you know, those were Al-Qaeda attacks, and we just completely expected that this was Al-Qaeda too. There was no question in our minds. And can you talk about how you guys, like, what happened next? Like, how you funneled into the vehicles to go um, to respond? 
Yeah, so we, as soon as we saw that second plane hit, um, we were uh, ramping up. We said, we got to get out of here, grab your gear. So we ran downstairs onto the first floor of the shooting house. You know, our, our long guns, our uh, fully automatic uh, machine guns, uh, handguns, everything was spread out with our, with our body armor, our full kits, and we were just grabbing everything in our arms as quickly as we can, throwing it, uh, those of us that had kit bags with us, we were, you know, old parachute bags, we were tossing stuff in that, and we went running out of the shooting house towards where our trucks were parked, and most of us had, well, there was a lot of black Suburbans, but not exclusively black Suburbans, but there were a bunch of those. Uh, we had one or two guys per vehicle. Um, I had another guy, uh, Dave, riding with me, so... Uh, he jumped in with me. We had to leave the base there and actually go to Oceana Naval Air Station. And so we were just we just tossed our stuff into the back seats or the back of our trucks. Didn't put any of the things away as we normally would. Uh, jumped into the vehicles from this one parking lot that was inside the, the compound, and we started racing towards the compound exit. Um, and it's a double-walled compound, two layers of very high fencing with a, a gravel moat in between. Um, you have barricades and sliding uh, gate uh, security measures there. Uh, there's a gate guard. So as we came racing up to where the gate guard was, we noticed all of the SEALs that we had just been in the shooting house with and a lot of their teammates and guys from other teams had lined up and formed a gauntlet to the exit area. And they were just standing at attention saluting. And some of these guys were wearing flight suits. Some of them were in shorts and flip-flops. But every guy that, that knew that we were there and that we were responding immediately formed this gauntlet um, of just Navy SEALs, our most elite warriors, saluting us because they knew what we were doing and who we were. And the last person was the commander of Red Team. He was on the left side as we were approaching. I was the first vehicle driving. My window was down. I stopped right in front of him. And uh, he said, Tim, good luck. You go find him. We'll go kill him. And I said, that sounds like a plan. And then we all saluted back. They opened the gates and we flew off the base. Uh, and then we had to go to Oceana Naval Air Station because we had all the rest of our gear in the bachelor officer's quarters where we were staying over there. So when we got to the base, the base was in lockdown and they weren't letting any vehicles come or go. But I guess the, either the security guys or the team guys over at the SEAL Team 6 compound had notified the Oceana personnel that we were on our way there. And so they let us in. They, they opened the gate. They opened the exit gate for us to enter and let us come in against traffic. And there was a long line of vehicles trying to get onto the base and a long line of vehicles trying to exit the base. But the security escorted us to the BOQ. Uh, we went in, got all our gear, again, just tossed it into our trucks and went running out back into our vehicles, jumped in, and they gave us a security ex uh, escort from the BOQ to the exit and to the on-ramp to get on the interstate highway. I think it's Interstate 264, maybe mistaken, or 64, that's close to Oceana. And as we were passing the airfield on the way to the exit, we saw like the most 
furious uh, air show you can imagine. Every single thing that could fly was launching. Helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft, fighter jets, everything was launching right after the other. Uh, their orders were to protect the National Capital Region and the East Coast. So Navy aviators were, were putting everything in the air and also to protect assets on the ground so that, uh, you know, you didn't have a Pearl Harbor situation where hundreds of aircraft are sitting on the ground being destroyed by an enemy that, you know, is, is unknown at this point. Um, we didn't know how many planes had been hijacked or what the plans were, what was coming next. So uh, it was an awesome show of firepower as they were taken off. Uh, blue flames coming out of the rear of all the fighter aircraft as they went vertical, one after the other, just kept going. And we raced by this uh, going probably, we had to be going 60 or 70 miles an hour in a 15 mile an hour zone through the base, got to the, to the exit, they opened up the gate, and then we went right onto an on-ramp onto the highway. And again, I was the first vehicle, got up, came up the on-ramp, and at the top of the on-ramp, there was no traffic moving down the highway. And it was really surreal, because normally, the, any, any day of the week, when the weather is nice, the traffic to and from Virginia Beach is, is horrible. It's usually standstill traffic. You have bridges and tunnels you have to go through. And it's always, always terrible in any direction you're going from Virginia Beach. Um, it's a huge military town. It's also a very big tourist town. And we got up onto the highway proper off the off on-ramp and there was nothing. And I looked to my left and there was a row of angled Virginia State police cars stopping the traffic from getting to this on-ramp. So all the approaching traffic that was going northbound, or in this case, it would have been west and north, was stopped. So I don't know how far it was backlogged or how this uh, formation came into effect. We're assuming the SEALs or the, the personnel at Oceana maybe notified Virginia State Police to this day. I don't know. But uh, there were at least five Virginia State Police cars in a in a they were straight forward facing north in the northbound lanes, but they were in like a staggered position going across the, all the lanes of the highway and the shoulders, blocking it off completely. The state troopers were all out of their cars, standing in front of their vehicles, saluting us as we pulled up the ramp onto the highway. Again, the most unreal, surreal thing you can imagine seeing. And uh, we, we just, we were shocked. We saluted back, waved, and just floored it. Uh, I, I, I went up to 100 miles an hour, and I kept it pretty much at 100 miles an hour from that point until we reached the D.C. Beltway. And, uh, you know, a couple of guys, including Dave, who was in the car with me, had to, had to pee while we were on the road for two-plus hours, driving 100 miles an hour. And, you know, he just emptied a Gatorade bottle and filled it up again. Um, and we just kept driving and every on-ramp and every off-ramp there was either state police or a local police jurisdiction blocking off the on-ramps pushing traffic out of the way and basically forming a wedge formation ahead of us to clear all the traffic out of our way so that we could go 100 plus miles an hour and get to where we needed to go to respond to the attacks um, by this time we had all gotten pages that the 
Pentagon had been attacked by another plane. It was struck by a plane intentionally, and that there were other aircraft now that were deemed um, hostile because they had been hijacked, uh, including one that was currently headed towards the D.C. region, coming over Pennsylvania. So we were getting these frantic pages from FBI uh, command center in the Washington field office and from FBI headquarters notifying us of all the threats. And there, the threats were exponentially greater than the reality because people all over Washington, D.C. Would, would like see the smoke coming from the Pentagon and think it was, you know, the State Department burning or the Capitol burning. And so we were getting all these constant uh, incorrect, inaccurate texts or um, pages about multiple pronged attacks in the Washington, D.C. region and also in New York. Um, and so we, we were... We were amazed that these cops at every on-ramp, every off-ramp, and all throughout our travel up the, the highways were making it impossible for anybody to impede our flow. Uh, what they were trying to do was push the traffic out of the way, left, right, um, or off the off-ramps and on-ramps so that we could just continually go in this line of almost 20 vehicles driving over 100 miles an hour with uh, three dozen FBI agents racing to get back to first we were headed to new york but then once the pentagon got hit that was our jurisdiction it was actually my squad's jurisdiction the national capital response squad so we altered and said all right we're not going to new york we got to go to the pentagon first and then back to our headquarters our office the washington field office because uh there were also threats coming in about that so it was a really hectic incredible uh couple hours yeah, it's amazing. Like I just every time, like when I first heard it, when first heard it when you spoke on the podcast, and that now when I hear you now, it's just I don't know. It gives me chills, and it's just you know really amazing. But as far as you get to the Pentagon, and then wh- what happens next? Well, actually, let me stop you before we get to the Pentagon. So, nine eleven was uh, you know I've worked a lot of terrorist incidents, uh, hundreds and hundreds of shootings, bombings all kinds of things, spent over a year in Iraq working bombings, um, did assassination investigations uh, in, in Europe and the Balkans. And, you know, I've seen absolutely the worst of humanity. And I think 9-11 showed the worst of humanity on the side of Al-Qaeda. You know, the, what the hijackers did to stewardesses, flight attendants and um, passengers and you know, killing all the passengers, killing the people on the ground, just total wanton disregard for human life. And at the same time, it was the greatest example of humanity, what, what we saw. And, you know, like the from the SEALs down in, in Virginia Beach to the guys at Oceana to the state troopers and all the local police jurisdictions all along the way, those were all phenomenal examples of humanity. And then we got to the Beltway and because of the threats to Washington, D.C., this had never been done before, but all vehicular traffic inside the Beltway was shut down. Every road, every highway, nobody could drive. The airports were shut down. Um, and so we got to what's, what's called the Beltway. The Beltway is like a 12-lane dual-direction circle around Washington, D.C., and the Pentagon is inside the Beltway. It's actually in Arlington, Virginia. It's inside the Beltway. It's a few miles inside the Beltway, probably four or five miles. 
we got to the Beltway proper. We were driving on what's Interstate 95 becomes Interstate 395 inside the Beltway, and then 95 becomes part of the Beltway. 95 and 495 are the highways, so if anybody looks at a map, you can see what we're talking about. And that that intersection, it's called the Mixing Bowl, it's got overpasses and underpasses that go in 12 different directions at least. Um, and it's, a, it's just a huge conglomeration of, of highways and major thoroughfares. And you can imagine with all of that shut down, Washington, D.C. traffic is horrible to begin with. In this circumstance, it was um, probably a mile, mile and a half long, quarter mile wide parking lot by the time we got there. And so we, we come up, we're racing at 100 miles an hour. We got uh, Virginia State Troopers in front of us trying to form a wedge and push cars out of the way until they hit this wall of parked cars. And most of the people weren't even in their vehicles. They had just given up. They were sitting on the side of the road. They had apparently been sitting there for hours, and the road wasn't about to open up. So there was nowhere they could go. We, unfortunately, had no other way to get where we needed to go other than continuing through this path of parked cars. And so we, the, the state troopers stopped, opened up and said, hey, guys, as far as we can get you. And I just said, thank you. We saluted and, uh, and waved to those guys. They, they peeled off, turned around, went the wrong way down the highway behind us. We were stuck looking at the sea of parked cars. And we still had, we had our sirens on, we had our lights flashing, and nobody was moving. The cars were turned off, the the cars were empty, and we were trying to figure out what the heck are we going to do? Can we go on the shoulder? No, there's cars parked on both shoulders, the southbound lanes, there's cars parked over there, and we could not figure out what to do. And then just then, um, I look, and a couple hundred yards ahead of us and to the right, there's a guy running towards us. He's running straight towards us. And he looks mad. He also looks like he's Middle Eastern. And on a day where we believe uh, Middle Eastern terrorists from Al-Qaeda have attacked the United States on multiple fronts, to see a guy running towards you who fits similar description um, of not only this attack, but dozens of other terror attacks the United States has faced around the world, we, we immediately... Uh, thought, okay, this is not a good situation. And I, I pointed him out to Dave, who was beside me, and I said, Dave, what's this guy up to? And he was zigzagging through all the parked cars, running straight towards us. And Dave said, and he doesn't look like he's up to any good. And I said, uh, all right, be ready. And so Dave grabbed his MP5 machine gun, which was on the floor between his legs, and he slowly started bringing it up, flipped on his optic on it, as the guy was getting closer and closer, he took it off safe. And then he started bringing it up to his shoulder and he said, do I have a green light? And I said, I, I don't hold off, hold off. I don't know what this kid's up to. I said, and he's running straight towards us. It's not a straight path, obviously, because of all the vehicles, but you could tell he's coming for us. And I don't know if he has a weapon. I don't know if he's got a suicide vest. Everything's running through our minds. We're trying to figure this out. And Dave, Dave says, do I have the green light? And I said, Dave, Hold off until the last possible second. Look for a weapon. Look for a threat. Don't just shoot him until you see a threat. And so I, I had grabbed my pistol. I took it out of the holster. I had my pistol in my hand. Dave has his MP5. He lowers his window, starts swinging the MP5 out the window as the guy gets within about 50 yards. And he said, 
he's not stopping, he's not stopping. And I said, hold, Dave, just hold. And just before the guy, maybe three cars in front of us, the guy makes a hard right turn and says he's coming from our right side and goes to the vehicle directly in front of us and bangs on the hood and starts screaming, whoever's vehicle this is, move to the right. Then he runs to the vehicle to the left of that, bangs on the hood and says, whoever's this is, move to the left. And he starts screaming at everybody and people realized what he was doing. And Dave and I both realized he's trying to help us. So Dave lowered his weapon. I lowered my weapon. And this kid who looked like he was from, could have been from anywhere in the, 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 the GCC region, the Gulf uh, Coast region, where you, the Gulf Co- Cooperation Council, which is you know, Saudi Arabia and all those countries. He just had a deep Middle Eastern look to him. And he ran in front of us, got people to get back in their cars and just squeeze left and right to make room. That kid went at least, I don't know how far it was, a half mile, a mile, banging on every car that was directly in our path, left and right, and getting them to move a little bit left, a little bit right, so we could squeeze through. And we got to the end of this gauntlet, and you had, uh, I forget what jurisdiction it was, Arlington Police, I believe, had the highway shut down. And they saw us snaking through this crowd of vehicles, lights and sirens still going, this long line of mostly black suburbans coming, and they made an assumption on who we were, and they opened the gates for us. They basically pulled their vehicles out of the way, let us come through, and when we got to that last barricade of vehicles, the police vehicles, that same kid, Middle Eastern-looking kid, probably in his early 20s, who is the, you know, that is the, the, the model of a terrorist around the world at this time. And still to this day, young, young males, military age from the Middle East. And it's a sad thing to say, but it's reality. And here's this kid. He stood right behind the police cars. And as we approached, he saluted us. And wow. it was the, the third episode of being so well probably the 30th because the cops all did it at every on-ramp and every off-ramp but it was the third iteration of a salute and other people around him started to do the same thing but he stood there like he was at attention saluting us so here's a kid clearly who lives in america loves america figured out we were somebody important in the law enforcement world and wanted to help us did help us got us through this this gauntlet we never thought we'd get through and so I, I was saying to Dave I got on the radio and I said to all the other cars toss this kid whatever swag you have <laughs> and Dave and I took our FBI hats off ripped our patches off our we were wearing flight suits Nomex flight suits which is what we wear in SWAT training ripped our patches off any coins we had and I just reached out the window held them out to this kid and he had this huge grin on his face. He was smiling as, as he you know, took the hat, put the coins and the patches in the hat. And then all the other trucks, the FBI vehicles passing by him, tossed them out, hats, shirts, whatever they had. And this kid was just, his arms were full by the time we got past him. And, uh, and we got onto the highway. And immediately when we got to that point, there's a little bit of a crest in the highway. We could see the thick black smoke rising from the Pentagon. And... We raced from there straight to the Pentagon. That's amazing. I bet you uh, that kid probably still has all that swag that you gave to him. I hope he does. He's probably got a museum of it. 
and then so you race to the Pentagon. Or how long did it take you to make that drive? Um, I, I'm trying to think of how many miles it is. It's it's got to be well over 200 miles. So it was probably a couple hours. And we left uh, right after the first plane hit. I think that was 8.47 a.m. So we were probably on the highway before 9 a.m. or right around 9 a.m. So this was approximately 11 a.m. when we arrived at the Pentagon. And there's still... You know, the, the, the way it works in a, in a situation like this where you have a, a terror attack, a natural disaster, whatever, it's, um, you know, save lives, rescue the living, preserve the dead, then preserve the evidence. Um, and so you don't worry about preserving evidence when you're trying to save lives. But at the same time, in a situation where, you know, the, the part of the Pentagon facade had collapsed because of the structure of the, you know, the wingspan of the airplane hitting the Pentagon took out the lower floor, the lowest level above ground of the Pentagon. So all the support structures in the, in the outer ring or two, there's five rings to the Pentagon, A through E, the outer ring or two, those, most of those support structures were destroyed by the wings and the fuselage continued further in into the uh, the building until the fuselage was eventually destroyed and then its own energy path continued destroying the pentagon ahead of it so there's literally no no more aluminum superstructure of the plane left but there's still a path of destruction that's cylindrical in the diameter of the, the fuselage uh taking out walls all the way through to i think the d-ring and uh, so we got there. We we jumped out of our vehicles. We all are, are, are you know, we're all in, still in SWAT gear. And so we ran up, asked who, how we could help. Some guys jumped in and helped immediately with the life saving. Uh, other guys were were trying to figure out what what else can we who we can support, what units are there, who needs help where. And at the same time, we got notified by the Washington field office that we needed to get guys back to the field office immediately to protect the field office because there were still threats. There were still aircraft that uh, were considered uh, potentially hijacked at this point. Um, I think I think all told we had about 11 aircraft that we were not squawking correctly or it turns off their transponders. Um, there was there was a lot of confusion on the ground and it was even more confusion in the air. So you have pilots that are told, put your plane on the ground anywhere immediately. And, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out what aircraft, what, what airport can I get to? Where am I? What, what, you know, it just changed the world, everything that was happening at that time. And so a lot of those aircraft normally would be passing over uh, monitoring stations, and communications facilities, which would give them. Uh, you know, information on the plane and where it's going and what its route is. And they'd be talking to different towers and different uh, communication centers along the way. And a lot of that communication will stop because all of a sudden a plane that's flying from Cleveland to Chicago has to put down in, you know, in Tennessee or in, in, in some other city or state at some other airport because it's the closest one that can admit them at that time. So all that chaos meant that there were still seven aircraft that were not completely accounted for 
mostly over the East Coast, but but spread out around uh, that the region that were believed to possibly have been hijacked. And so they're trying to get in touch with pilots. Pilots had you know changed their communication channel, so they're talking to somebody else because they think they need to be on this channel and they're not on the channel they're supposed to be. Whatever circumstances were, there was a lot of confusion. And so we were asked to immediately send a bunch of guys to our, our building to um, to set up a, a perimeter around it. So we, normally the FBI Washington field office and FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., just six or eight blocks away, are protected by what are known, it's a small police force known as the FBI police. And uh, they handle Quantico, Washington uh, field office, and uh, FBI headquarters. And they would be responsible for the perimeter security, outer perimeter of the building. But uh, the headquarters and Washington field office was asking for men with long guns, snipers on the roof, uh, armored vehicles around the perimeter to prevent uh, attack from a vehicle-based IED attack. Um, and the FBI's hostage rescue team was called up to headquarters to assist at WFO and to assist in New York um, and other places. So a lot of chaos. We were sending guys all over as the, you know, I was the senior team leader. So I went back to the Washington field office for, uh, I don't know, a couple of meetings. Uh, was in It was in the command center when we were tracking all these different aircraft, trying to figure out if they were hostile or not. And those fighter jets out of... Uh, Oceana and other naval air stations and uh, other aircraft were in the air looking for actual threats. So they were patrolling the skies, flying with afterburners going all over the Washington, D.C. area. And, and, you know, National Airport, which is right beside the Pentagon, is shut down. So the only aircraft in the sky at the time were military aircraft. So I had to attend a couple of meetings, try and figure out what we were going to do, and then uh, within a couple hours, uh, I was back at the Pentagon, um, and we were protecting evidence because, unfortunately, we had a lot of people souvenir shopping outside the Pentagon, uh, just people that were on foot or driving around in vehicles in the air, immediate area of the Pentagon were grabbing pieces of the plane. Uh, there were all kinds of American aircraft insignia, American Airlines insignia on aircraft parts, scattered all in the in the field just outside where the plane had struck because when it hit parts of the aircraft were torn off on impact with the ground other parts were blown back from impact with the building the tail section hit the ground snapped up and then hit the, the fourth story of the building and left an impression of the basically the outer shape of the tail in the stone facade of the building. And a lot of those parts were then blown back. And when the explosion happened of all the diesel fuel uh, under compression inside the building, a lot of uh, articles which you know are considered evidence were blown back outside the building. And that's what we were trying to secure to make sure things weren't stolen so we could reconstruct the crime scene when it came to that point. Wow, I, I never thought of that people would do that, like, in such a chaotic thing, they would go and take parts of the plane, or that's just wild. But, um, yep. so, uh, what happened, like, maybe, like, the days after 9-11? Like, what did your role, like, evolve into? So, so um, as I was an investigator on the National Capital Response Squad, so we, we handled, we handled, 
what's it's known as crisis and consequence management. So crisis management is the immediate threat. So that's saving people, uh, identifying the dead, things like that. And then the consequence management is dealing with the consequences of what happened. And then the last part is the investigation itself. And so I was doing uh, a little of all of those, but then I got primarily moved into the investigation side. So we were trying to figure out, uh, my squad was handling, we have um, the National Capital Response Squad was uh, about 12 to 14 people normally, uh, men and women. Every one of us was uh, a number one or a number two leader of a specialty within the field office. So I was on the squad. I was the number two on the SWAT team, senior team leader. And then uh, our number one on the SWAT team was also on the squad. The two top two bomb techs, the top two evidence collection experts, the top two hazardous materials response people, uh, the top two weapons of mass destruction people, um, and the two leaders of the rapid deployment team. So all of those specialties are things that come to bear in a natural disaster or primarily for the FBI in a terrorist attack, any kind of major attack. So all of those leaders of the specialty groups were all on this one squad. So um, like, for instance, the SWAT team, there was only two members of the SWAT team on the squad, but we ran the other 35 members of the SWAT team who were on other squads. And if they're needed for something, we bring them in and decide decide what manpower is needed, what equipment, whatever, what our role will be. Uh, the same thing with the evidence collection people. So the two leaders of the evidence collection team, um, the ERT, evidence response team is what it was called, um, they are on the squad. And so the Pentagon kicks off and they say, okay, we have 230 uh, certified uh, evidence collection experts in this field office. We need every one of them working around the clock at the Pentagon. And so you bring those 200 plus people, other offices, Miami, other offices that weren't affected on 9-11 major offices sent personnel up. So we had hundreds of people because, you know, we have hundreds of victims. We have to recover. We have to identify them. We have to sift through the debris for, for human remains. And we have to sift through the debris for evidence of the crime of the terrorist attack. So that's all being coordinated from our squad. I was tasked specifically with uh, tracking down, going backwards in the trail of the, the hijackers. So we knew they had to have some kind of support structure that allowed them to do what they did. You had some hijackers that boarded planes and had been in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. area and others in New York. So we concentrated on the ones that were in the D.C. area to track backwards where they were, what they were doing, who they were with, who they were communicating with, how were they communicating, were they getting money, how were they getting money. So we were looking at uh, the Hawala system, which is a system that's very popular in Africa, especially East Africa, for sending money. It's basically it's like a wire transfer service without any formal banking structure. So you, you have your, your uncle in uh, Somalia, and there's no central bank in Somalia because there's no central government in Somalia. So you can't like send, uh, you know, a wire transfer to a bank in Somalia and give your uncle money. So if you're working in Northern Virginia at a Starbucks and you, you know, you, you want to send your uncle a hundred dollars, you go to a, there was a bookstore, for instance, near Arlington, Virginia, run by a guy from, uh, Somalia. And 
he would take your $100, charge you $6, and then he would deposit it into a bank account in Virginia, and then he would do a wire transfer to a bank in Ethiopia, and then a guy in the bank in Ethiopia would do a $94 withdrawal from the bank in Ethiopia, and the uncle would have to drive to either this Ethiopian border town or possibly a, a business in Somalia and pick up that $94, which was the $100 that the nephew sent them. So that structure is used for good people to try and support their family and friends and businesses around the world. It's also used by bad people. So Al-Qaeda was using an entity called Al-Barakat to transfer money to the terrorists and that that fee that six dollars that the guy at the bookstore in arlington is collecting a percentage of that goes to the owners of the company a percentage goes to the guy in ethiopia that's doing his part of the deal and so we found out that there was a kind of a terrorist financing structure using that system to support the hijackers so that was part of the investigation we were working on for many months after 9-11 that's fascinating. I that's just I don't even know what to say. It's like amazing, <laughs> um, amazing like that the behind the scenes uh, look at the FBI. Like I just would never like that's just fascinating. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think would be important to include? Um, I don't know, but uh, I was going to say there was there's a good buddy of mine, Bobby Chacon, retired FBI guy that was actually on a plane in Newark. That took off. It was, was it Flight 97 that came out of Newark? I'm trying to remember which one. He was on the flight immediately after, also going to the West Coast. So he had just taken off. And, you know, when you're an FBI agent and you fly, you fly armed, which you have to do when you're on duty and you, when you're off duty, you, you fill out a form at the ticket counter. You say, you tell the ticket person at the counter, hey, I'm a federal agent, I'm flying armed. They have you fill out a form, and then you carry that form. You go around security because you don't go through the security checkpoint with a gun. You go around it. You meet up with a police officer at the security checkpoint or adjacent to it, and then he escorts you past that point, and then you go to your gate, and you go to the gate personnel, and you say, hey, show them the form. I'm flying armed. And then the gate personnel will escort you onto the aircraft before any of the passengers come on board. And so you come on board, you meet the pilot, the captain in the in the cockpit, give him the form, he keeps the form, and then he walks or she walks you to your seat. And so he he or she, the captain of the plane, knows who you are, that you're armed, what agency you're with, and where you're sitting. So if there's an incident on the plane, they know where to reach you. And you know them. And so on 9-11, Bobby's with four other agents. I think it's four other agents. And they were flying, I think, out to L.A. And uh, they were armed. They went to cock- the, when the cockpit and the captain went to their seats, the plane takes off. And they see the plane directly ahead of them veer off course and crash into the World Trade Center. Wow. So they're, they're in the air. And so Bobby immediately took over the plane. So Bobby got his other guys, said, you go to the rear, you go to the, the, the two center points in the plane, you come with me, stand outside the cockpit. He went up, banged on the cockpit door, told the pilot, I'm coming in. They let him in. 
He stayed in the cockpit for the entire flight as he's communicating with FBI headquarters, trying to communicate with people on the ground and trying to make sure that his plane could not be taken over. I think I've listened to him on uh, the Best Case, Worst Case podcast. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, you've probably heard him a couple times. He's been on. He's part of our company, XG Productions. I mean, just imagine that, being an FBI agent on a plane watching the plane crash into the Pentagon and knowing planes are being hijacked. And you're armed, and you got three or four other armed FBI agents with you, and you just took over the plane. Yeah, it's amazing. Have a good rest of your day. All right, thanks, Matt.